Welcome back to a special three-part series on the future of work. My name is Aidan Vokolo, and here you will find business strategies, tips, and tactics that you can incorporate not only in your own venture, but your life, to help you simplify and strategically grow, scaling up the impact you're having in this world. Listen as I talk to creators, innovators, and game changers on what it takes to build an impactful business, uncovering their insights, strategies, and tips to help you increase profitability and develop a thriving team culture. Welcome to the Stories Behind the Grind podcast. Welcome back to a special three-part series on the future of work. In part three, I talk with the founders of Benchon, Sidekicker, and Talent Vine, who have built platforms so that deal with the workforce of the future, enabling individuals to harness their skill sets to adapt to industry changes. Previously, we've talked about the future of work from a business point of view, as well as an individual's perspective. So I'm excited to have you uh, all on today as we culminate this three-part series in a free-for-all discussion. But before we begin, Tim, can you tell us a bit more about Benchon? Yeah, sure. So Benchon is a business talent sharing platform that's designed to allow businesses that have spare capacity in their people. So they might be in between projects or in between contracts and they've got employees sitting on the bench in inverted commas. And rather than letting them go, firing them and losing all that corporate knowledge, instead, the platform automatically matches them up to short-term contracts with other companies that are looking for special support for their projects. So it becomes a bit of a, a win-win that allows companies to manage those peaks and troughs where when there's not enough work on, they can find work from all across the country, from all different industries to keep their employee teams intact. And then in the peaks, when they've got a lot of work on, rather than always going to the job seeker pool, they can find the hidden talent in other businesses to support them at a good price. And in terms of finding uh, hidden talent, Justin, you've um, started TalentVine. So can you tell us a bit more about what TalentVine does? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Aiden, Talentvine is essentially a recruitment consultant marketplace. So we're used by large employers as like a vendor management platform and SMEs as a way for them to be able to find specialist recruiters who are able to, to find them the specialist talent that they're looking for. So essentially what we do is we connect employers to those specialist recruiters who then bid for the opportunity to work with them. So uh, it enables businesses to be able to leverage off the time and the costs that others have already invested into finding very similar talent through the specialists that are out there in the market working on those positions already. Damien, yeah. you're the head of sales at Sidekicker. Can you tell us a bit more about them? Sure. G'day, guys, and hello, listeners. Our business sidekicker is a marketplace for casual and temporary employees. So what we aim to do is help connect people working in hospitality, people working in warehousing, and people working in office support. And we help to connect those with businesses that look into people on a short-term basis. And short-term could be in hospitality. That might be four-hour shift on the weekend. The business support, it could be a three-month contract, could be a warehouse that needs someone for a couple of months to do their pickpacking. We've got a marketplace where we test the candidate and then the hirers come on and, yeah, the hirers are empowered to come on and make the decision and pick people. Now, wonderful. Look, great to have you all on as we sort of culminate this three-part series on the future of work. I want to get started, want to um, really see where we can push this discussion in this final part. So a question I've got, I'll start with you, Tim. How will those choosing more flexible work arrangements affect applications for, say, finance or rental agreements that sort of have this expectation that you've got this full-time secure job within guaranteed income? I asked this of, of Mark Boris as well because, you know, he's in the home loan business with Yellow Brick Road and he was a supporter of the casualization of the workforce. And I said, well, what happens in the future if everyone is just running from contract to contract? How do people get home loans and how do people get credit cards and cars and everything else that this whole economy is set up on? And we know that the banking industries and all that are 
being disrupted just like everyone else and things are changing and there's different loan types and everything else. But at the moment, anyone who's doing any type of investment or loan wants to see consistency. And that was something that a lot of our clients, employees were saying is that, you know, some of them are in those stages of life where they can't take risks worry of that next paycheck's coming from because they've got a family, they've got a mortgage, and they need to keep a steady income coming through. That's why I always say that the future work is a balanced approach because people at different times in their life need different things. And stability is certainly one of those ones that allows you to get the loans to develop the life that you want to live. It's happened to one, yeah, one of my friends recently. So he's still permanently employed and he knows he's got a couple of things he's got to got lined up. And it's one of those ones where he's in the process of maybe doing his own business or he's got another job offer on the table. He's saying, do I go and set up my own business? Do I stick with stable employment until I get blah, 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 loan approved? And then, I, yeah, and, and then I'll go and do that. Even right now where we don't have that, the future work, we don't have the immense flexibility. Yeah, there is that definite uncertainty, maybe not able to do exactly what you want for fear of not getting the home loan or not getting even that even that rental application wrong. Could be as big as a house, could be as small as trying to get a credit card. And that's why I actually think that it's a responsibility of our society to make sure that there is stable employment and that businesses are able to hire staff on a stable basis as we move forward and all these changes are happening. So we need to be able to look at it. You know, 60% of the workforce is full-time employed, but everyone tends to focus in on the, the new shiny object. So that's why we're trying to say, well, look, you know, let's make sure that the 60% are still looked after. You know, and people can always be flexible with the additional work they get outside of their full-time job, but that full-time job gives them stable employment and all the benefits like leave and long service leave and tenure and mentoring and process and that sort of thing, which I think is all just as important. Yeah, it all sort of depends on what stage you are in your life, really, and what you're uh, what you're craving and what you sort of need more of at that point in time. You know, sometimes stability is most important, and sometimes you know having a more flexible approach is the way to do things. You know, with the future of work being able to sort of have that option at least available for those to be more flexible when they need to. And I think what we're seeing, like as as the future of work obviously uh, begins to change, you actually see these innovations that are happening around it to to be able to support people. So uh, you use the example of uh, you know being able to get a, a rental agreement and uh, good opportunity. There's a, a great little uh, startup that I came across recently, Reputation Air. Um, the founder Andrew has has pulled this platform out of Melbourne, and essentially is because his girlfriend was trying to get a rental agreement and she was into casual employment and she wasn't able to provide the necessary kind of documentation to show that and. His platform now essentially shows what your Uber ratings are, your Airbnb ratings, all these rate ratings that you have as social proof across the interwebs that can be presented to, uh, you know, to landlords to actually show that you're someone who's actually trustworthy enough, even if you're in a, in a casual position to be able to take on that lease. So, uh, that's a fantastic idea. It's a great idea. So it's uh, pretty exciting in itself. The innovations do pop up around it. That's what I mean. Like even the banking systems are starting to change now to say, well, how can we loan to people with some level of confidence if they don't have any type of full-time work? But I still think that, you know, for a major shift of massive reduction in full-time work, we've still got a long way to go. It won't happen overnight and there's still a lot of people that need to be looked after. Businesses will still form the basis of our economy. Yeah, definitely. You know, businesses are the sort of the powerhouse of the economy. What role do you think government has in sort of legislating change? I think government has a lot of responsibility. So if you look at the future of work and the, and the problems, what I think it comes down to is the fact that people need to experience pain before they do something about it. You ever had that in your life where you know you shouldn't be doing something, but it's not until you actually experience some of the bad from doing that that you then go, okay, I'm going to stop um, or I'm going to do something about it or I'm going to change my lifestyle. You know, I'm getting fat, so I'm now going to start running in the morning. 
people need to see the cause. I didn't want to say anything, Tim, but I'm glad you're aware of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm riding my kids to school in the morning, so (laughs) shut up, shut up. Uh, But yeah, look, like, so people need to feel the problem. And I think the problem is, is that employees, you know, with the displacement of jobs and the changing of jobs in the future, employees are the first ones that feel it because they're the ones that either lose their job or can't find new work because of the skill sets, you know, not matching up. And then the next ones that will feel it are business. And then the final ones that will feel it is, is the government when the lack of spending dries up, the lack of tax dries up, you know, the economy starts to constrict. The government is in the perfect position to be able to educate the market on what's needed. You know, how are skill sets changing? What are the trends? Educate school kids on what they should be going into and what they should be learning so that we can start driving it in the right direction. So, in effect, the last person to feel the pain of the change in this future work that's coming through is the government. And yet the government is the first one that needs to be acting. So that's why we need we need leadership. We need someone to actually stand up and go, you know, what? we're going to invest in this now so that we can prevent it in the future. And there was a, a Ernst & Young report that said, for the first time in history, we have the knowledge and the foresight and the ability to prevent social and economic problems because we can predict it and we have the ability to think our way through it, yet no one's taking any action. And you're right in terms of, as you said, almost like the trickle-down effect of who can make, yeah, who can make the businesses, who can make the banks think in a different way, who can even make, you know, us now think in a different way. It's, you're right. It's absolutely clear line of sight from, you know, the government and yeah, and the policy makers to actually start the conversation around that. Now, you know, this time last week, you know, we had the conversation started by the treasurer around, you know, the aging, almost like the aging workforce and how to better mobilize your business to take advantage of the older sort of workforce. But Kind of all that, all that did was probably put off. All that seemed to do was put offside that portion of the workforce that already feels marginalised in terms of the people you know who was suffering the ageism. It's probably just exacerbated that. When it comes to the insurance and, and that, they they're not really being protected. If the government's going to sit back and, and wait for Uber to and the large the large technology companies and uh, or corporates to be the ones to actually drive the protection of of these employees, it's not happening. You might have a libertarian mind frame. I think it's really important that government does take much more of a leadership and provide that kind of protection. And to touch on, you know, we can see how things are shifting. We know what things are going to be like a lot more in five, ten years time, and and there needs to be that change and, and that protection to support the life styles and and the way that people will be working. And the problem comes down to the fact that the government can't keep up with the rate of change. They're so slow because of the bureaucracy. And this is, I guess, the catch-22 is government needs bureaucracy to make sure that they don't waste taxpayers' money and that there's no corruption and all those sorts of things. Yet business models and the market and industries are changing so fast and so rapidly. I mean, you see it with the Ubers and all that where the government just can't keep up with the policy. Like, how do they deal with it? They've never considered it. And even in considerate, what are they going to do? They're going to do some sort of investigation and research, which will take a year. You know, they'll then write a report and that'll get put out and discussed for another year. And then they might come up with a policy. But by that stage, we've gone through three or four or five iterations of different business cycles and we're all doing completely different. I don't have answers to that, but I think that people in the government need to be looking at that and saying, okay, well, how do we have smaller iterations? How do we make faster decisions? And, and how can we put policies in place that actually guides the market and the industries rather than just sitting back and waiting for all this change to wash over us and just see what happens. Do you see that effect worldwide as well? Say out of Australia, do you see some countries more agile and adapt in their governments than Australia? Well, I don't have a good example on that. I, I would see what the others think. Yeah, I wouldn't want to use some country of Zimbabwe as an example. 
I think, you know, Australian government's probably doing uh, way more than themselves, but I wouldn't be in a position to answer that, to be perfectly honest, you know, what the others are doing. I reckon I've got more of a local view than, you know, yeah, a local view. And maybe we all think that, right? Maybe your, your point's a good one. I guess we always look for what could be done better rather than recognising some of the things that are already done or already done well within the sort of business or government. But certainly we would like to be a bit more, almost like the, the term I'm thinking of is progressive in terms of, yeah, do we need things to almost like economy not quite collapse, but the economy to compress that much because, yeah, people can't get their home loans in order to do something or do we want to spot that? Now we probably won't be able to sort of spot and change now, but rather than it being a 10-year horizon, what if they did something in five or what if they were able to do something in two or three? That to me would be a demonstrable shift. Like imagine in both of your businesses, you know, both of you guys, found and run your own business. Imagine your business. If you're line of sight, we'll really wait and see. I think we're having a bad week. Maybe we're having a bad month. Maybe we're having a bad quarter. Maybe we're having a bad year. I might look into that. Like that would be ludicrous. You wouldn't do that at your business, would you? No, you're right. I, I just think it comes down to, you know, all of the innovations that are coming out of you know, the startup sector and, and we have embraced failure. Uh, you know, there's been this massive shift. They even got to the point where I was like, all right, calm down. Failure is not a badge of honor. But at the same time, it's not something that's, you know, you need to be as negative about. You know, it's just part of your movement forward. We fail fast, we learn, we pivot, and we change. You know, so I guess the question is, would society be happy with a government that will fail more, that will have failures, but we recognize that as, well, this is a step of keeping up with the change, making fast policy decisions. Some of them are going to be wrong, but we're going to just learn from that, pivot, change the policy quickly and move on. And that's, mm. a, that's a massive society cultural change because we expect our governments to be perfect and to never make a mistake. And as soon as they do, we crush them and we, and we put somebody else in. So that's why they're so resistant to, to failure and, and pivoting on the fly. How do we change the culture in our country to be able to say, you know what, we're going to move fast and that means that we're going to break some eggs. Yeah. That whole tall poppy syndrome, I think, is uh, something that everyone in Australia kind of does struggle for. And it's so true what you say, you know, they they need to just try something. And, you know, all of us, are, you know, managing and, and having our own teams as, as well. You know, we, uh, I'm, I'm sure I speak on, on behalf of everyone else that we're okay if our team members fail at something, you know, just try something, just don't stand still, right? And and that's what I'd like to see more of the government, you know, let's say uh, we, we're, we're going to try something and, instead of just waiting, you know, two years of analysis and then uh, releasing a report, which might be acted on it within two years' time. Just try. I agree with you, Justin. Even if you think about what view do you take for your customers, right? So in terms of sometimes when you know when you fail or you think things are going to go a certain way and they don't, we got that little part wrong. Sorry. And in terms of I could hide from it. So in terms of hey, governments can you know or, you know governments or business can hide from it, or you confront for it. And I think it would be a progressive government to say, yeah, we're going to try stuff and fail for us to almost like accept that because almost like we're hardwired to yeah be looking for the failures and judging people on the failures. But if I swing the mirror around back to myself in terms of if we expect governments and our kids and you know our clients will be perfect well nobody is but you're right in terms of you know where's that little bit of slack to say well i've got the last yeah had the last two out of three we did those and we did those well you tend to focus in on the yeah the one out of three when we talk about exactly that it's very kind of topical at the moment i would love to put this to you guys uh sorry aiden uh, to be uh, jumping into your space here but um if the morrison government turned around tomorrow and said actually you know what we've got it wrong you know we should have actually taken some different action we should have listened to some people and, and maybe changed our policies we're sorry we've got it wrong let's look at what we should do moving forward 
Do you think they're going to do that? Or are they too scared to be able to say something like that because of the fear of the repercussions and they just have to pretend and, you know, head in the sand and and just pretend that uh, they never did anything wrong? This will get into a political debate, but I think in Australia, we are very much too aggressive from either side. Either side sits there and they just go, you made a mistake and then they hammer it. Media, 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 soundbite, soundbite, soundbite. Like, oh, it's preposterous. And that's all they talk about. So they're terrified of making a misstep. So if Morrison, as Morrison's government did say that and went through that process, that's now something that they've got on their books that Labor can now just harp on. They can say they made the mistake then, so they're going to make the mistake now. That's the cultural shift. Like, okay, someone failed in the past, but that means they've learned from it and they should be better now. You know, why does that then undermine their future performance? That's not the political culture we have at the moment, which is why we won't see that change. Yeah, it's almost like we're, we're in for a bit of a paradigm shift in how governments are, going, are running and whether, you know, the economy needs to take a bit of a downturn for governments to sort of, I guess, finally take notice. Maybe they're less worried about what the opposition are doing and probably even more worried about what their own. If you admit a mistake within your own party, look how many leaders we've had in the last five years, do you know what I mean? So they're probably less worried about what the opposition are going to do based on their missteps and their failings and probably more worried about what their own party is going to do to be sort of turfed out, do you know what I mean? So it's almost like fighting, you know, to use that analogy, you know, he's probably fighting fires on a number of fronts in terms of internally and externally. To be able to say completely, like we all know, it's almost like it's one of those ones where some things are obvious as the nose on the end of your face what should have happened and what you should say but the spin the denial the blah 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 sort of comes in and then yeah and then we still think no no you're right it'd be very surprising for us to hear no no we got that yeah hey hands in the air we got that one wrong here's what we're going to do next time and look i'll give you a perfect example the labor hire licensing laws that they've put out came out like they started for a very very good reason because people were getting taken advantage of particularly in the horticultural section they were being underpaid they weren't given the conditions they should have had and there were some unscrupulous providers that were doing that. And these are state governments. Their action is to put labor hire licensing in where the definition of labor hire is a company providing a person to another person to do work. That pretty much sums up every business ever. Someone coming to mow my lawn, does that mean that Jim's mowing is now a labor hire service because they're providing me a person to do a service? You know, like how far do you take it? And now companies that don't consider themselves labor hire companies who are just consultants are now having to pay five thousand or doing a couple of thousand dollars a year they're having to report every quarter where their people are what they're working on you know all this additional admin to fix one problem and if we look at it there's fair work australia you know there's the ombudsman there's there's all these people there's all these systems and laws already in place to stop this stuff that have now just put multiple layers of cost and bureaucracy and admin over the top of it, which is slowing down industry. That's the type of silly decisions we have to prevent. You're right. So, yeah, if you think about what problem they're trying to solve and then what mechanisms they put in place to try and solve that problem, yes, you're right. Sometimes that gets lost along the way, right? And whether it be be the insulation, whether it be the solar scheme, whether it be the blah, 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 it's almost like the solution doesn't quite match the problem a lot of the time and not in a timely manner as well. No. No, 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 that's right. And then they just chuck it in. There's minimal consultation. Like I looked at the extensive consultation that they did and that was with labor hire firms, some recruiting firms, and I think some mining companies that use a lot of labor hire. But they didn't talk to anybody in the professional services industry or any of the industries that are actually being affected the most. They need to start listening more and start engaging more. But then again, that takes time. 
you know, you've got to organize all these things and get people into the right place and how, what questions are you going to ask them. But it is amazing sometimes. So, yeah, so we work heavily within the labor hire sort of business. It's amazing how many, even now in this, almost like in this day and age where we sort of speak to sort of, um, you know, potential sort of customers and they look at us and say, well, what's that figure? I said, well, that's the award wage for the worker. Couldn't possibly do that. I said, well, look, I don't want to be, yeah, fair enough. But you know what? Do you realise your potential? Yeah, you're potentially not paying your workers the, the right wage. And they kind of look at you and say, how? Oh, that, that's ridiculous. It's not ridiculous. This is what you need to do. So I, from a, um, you know, protecting people that need to be protected, I think the intention's there, but you're right in terms of hey, the execution and then the extras that goes on to, you know, whether you've got a small business and you're doing your bass or whether you're a big business and probably not paying your tax. And sometimes you think, who's the poor little sausage in the middle that's getting squeezed here? Yeah, there's definitely a big focus on sort of profits at the end of the day, at the expense of employees in a lot of businesses out there. And it's really just finding that balance and then knowing who you're serving and, you know, why you're doing it and paying people fairly. That is so important. They're the businesses that are going to last and take advantage of where the future of work is going. But in terms of a skill point of view, I'd like to get your perspectives on the university sector. And what responsibilities universities have in educating our, you know, young people for the future job prospects, that sort of organisation that can be slow to adapt to change. So I'd love to hear what you think should be done in that sector. So it's potentially even further down the line. Your high school is almost like, as we said before, getting people prepared for what it is and what it isn't in terms of and what normal looks like. So if you think about, I've got one daughter who's in year seven at high school and a son um, who's in grade six, and I talk to them a lot about almost like what things were like when I was studying, to what things were like when I was first working, to what I think is going to happen when they finish high school and go to university, just thinking about... Um, Almost like getting them to try and think about what skills will be in demand, what they like doing now and how to better orientate themselves towards that. So I think before it even gets to university level, I think it's a conversation that parents have. And in terms of, you know, if your parents aren't keen or clean, I'd like to see something be more available for school kids to be thinking about. So then to me, that trickles on to, that trickles on to university. But if I think about my time at university, yeah, they were very much in terms of certainly not ahead of the times. They were very much just barely keeping pace with the time. So I think more needs to be done for that, almost like that business slash university, almost like interaction as opposed to popping out as a grad, enjoying what seems to be, everyone seems to be doing, having their gap year and then working out, right, what am I doing now? It's almost like, whoops, that's too late. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's a uh, thing called a time machine. Maybe go back and do things differently, better, smarter. But I guess that's the benefit of having a view into what the now is to work out what next is going to be. There actually are some examples of schools doing new things. So I was at my son's school's beach night the other night and this, this year 12 kid won an award and it was a fully paid degree. It was amazing. But as they explain it, by the time they finished year 12, they'd already done semester of that degree. They'd already started learning the different processes of how uni works and what sort of things they need to learn. So that they are speeding things up, which I thought was amazing. But I think the way universities are failing is they haven't embraced micro-credentialing and they need to start looking at breaking everything down into individual skill sets and then people being able to choose, I want to learn this skill set or I need to complement my skills with this skill set. You know, I've taken a new job and one of the parts of that new job is X. So I'm going to go and take a three-week or a four-week or a six-week course to become proficient in X so that it helps me do my job better. If you think back on your degrees, 
how much of, act, of that degree have you actually used? You know, like I know how to research. I know how to write. I know how to reference. I know where to find information and I know how to think. Yes, I learned some of the basics of my trade. My trade has changed so often. But what it really did give me was the tools to be able to critically think and make my own decisions and research and, and come to my own conclusions. What we need to be doing is going, okay, well, what's the main area that people want to go into? What's the main skill set? Okay, and then what are all the other micro credentials or micro skills that you want to plug onto that to make you the best professional that you can be? And that's not a stagnant situation. It's a constantly evolving thing that people should constantly be building on and learning new skills. I think the way that people future proof themselves and universities are way behind on that. I guess who's not behind would be like supporting organizations in terms of they're very good at spotting talent at a very young age and putting people through programs. So, you know, I was talking to yeah, a mate of mine whose son's 15, 16, he's affiliated with an AFL club and basically every game he plays he's got two people watching him, videoing him, giving him feedback, et cetera, et cetera. Now, clearly the AFL have a lot more money than most universities. But in terms of, you know, is the almost like swimming a little bit downstream to help influence talent that's coming into your air quotes organization, whether, you know, whether it be a footy example, they do a really good job of it. Do you know what I mean? They do a really good job of doing that in terms of, hey, I reckon maybe the business and academic world can learn a lot from that. Now, admittedly, the careers are much shorter in sport and the prize is much, much bigger. But in terms of, I, th- I think a lot can be learned from what they're doing sporting now and applying that to business and then business applies that to university. And then, you know, he's doing really well. This is the vet sector, you know, the the private education sector, they are very in tune with industry. They're always going out to their network of companies and saying, what skills do you need? How do we need to evolve our courses? What do we need to do to make them better prepared to come in and move straight into your business? And they're more agile in changing those courses and getting them up to date. Whereas universities are, this is our degree. I mean, yeah, they update them, but it's still, it's a three or four year degree. Things change quicker than that. So how do they become more responsive? That's, I think, their biggest challenge. Go do a marketing or communications degree now and six months later, see how different the work is that, that you're going to be doing as to what was relevant at the time. Being in the, in the speaking on, I guess, Queensland, I, I know there's quite a big uh, kind of drive for that innovation, which I'm seeing, you know, we're seeing quite a few of the, the high schools that have innovation labs coming out of them with quite a, a strong kind of technology focus. But I, I also think the missing piece in the puzzle then as well is I think we all know that you're going to get so much more experience and learn your kind of trade actually on the job and being able to do vacational work or work experience and that. And then fair work, though, it's now made it actually illegal for you to actually have any unpaid internships. And that's an incredible thing, you know, for startups to be able to have that support in their organizations to help them with times when you are so lean and you're still trying to keep the lights on. And at the same time, giving such invaluable support to university students and those who are looking for kind of work experience. I mean, we have four people in our team joined us as interns and are now incredible, great members of, of our team. We absolutely love that. But you know, the restrictions are now in place that is stopping that from happening. And we know from experience that so many of the, the, the interns that are joining startups, that's where they're learning. That's where they're figuring out what it is that they want to do in their life. They're realizing all these different parts of businesses that they don't exist. These are positions as part of the future of work as well that might not have even existed at the time they started their university degree. We had an intern who joined us because he wanted to do some financial modeling, realized very quickly that he was actually pretty good with technology and pretty good at sales. And he essentially became a product manager within the organization, which he didn't even know existed. 
this is where I would love to be able to see the government making it a lot easier for startups to be able to give university students those opportunities without ending up in court. I think that's so true. When I worked at Seek, again, went a bit further downstream for 16-year-old girls in terms of there's a lot of talk and rhetoric about, you know, STEM and wanting to get more girls into STEM, but it felt like no one was really doing anything. It's like it's easy to say, but kind of hard to do. So yeah, so they set up almost like a yearly, not quite an internship. It's open to anyone in terms of your family, friends or whatever, but in terms of they came and did a proper bit of work experience around STEM. I think that's been going for four or five or sort of six years now in terms of, again, so it helps seek to understand, hey, what's the caliber of people coming through? How do they think? How do we better harness this? Um, how do we better harness this? And it also gave that cohort of, of girls experience in terms of, hey, what happens? Yeah, what happens when I finish high school and go to university and get a job? What's it actually like? So I can kind of hear, because otherwise they're probably used to what's life like at, you know, Macca's or Kmart or one of those other sort of casual jobs or working in a corporate, yeah, what I hear from mum and dad across the dinner table. So actually helping them form of what it is or what it's going to be, to me, was going to help better prepare them when they finally get there. But that's only a small cohort of girls. Imagine if that was done at scale. You know, imagine if that was available to thousands of geeks out there that did that or there was, you know, as you said, there was opportunities to get people and give them some of your IP and then they get to work out what they'd like to do. I mean, if I had my time again, I'm sure we all didn't, yeah, my degree would be bits and pieces rather than just staying in it within a stream. Yeah, it's interesting we're talking about internships because internship is one of the key ways that we get young people into different careers and get them the experience and they decide whether they want to go forward. But all of the feedback that I've been getting from industry is that internships don't actually, and and like Justin said, now that the laws are being very strict, you know, they, they don't suit a lot of companies. They can't work on revenue generating work. They have to have a supervisor and a mentor with them at all times. You know, you have to write weekly reports. Like all of these things that are put on top of internships, they don't support, like Justin said, where you're a young company, you don't have much money, you just need people to come in. If they help you working, they get experience. All of those restrictions put on top don't suit them anymore. So I was proposing to them instead a contractorship model where graduates are able to be put out on short-term contracts so that they can, one, get paid because everyone likes to be paid, even graduates. I know they like two-minute noodles because that's how they survive through their degree, but hey, let's get some money in the bank. (laughs) Secondly, you know, the companies, small businesses can get graduate-level people doing graduate-level work at graduate-level prices, you know, which are the $30 an hour, $40 an hour, whatever the award is for that area. You don't have to pay them a bucket load. You just pay them something. And then... The, the education providers actually get the benefit of showing that their students are actually more employable because they're getting employed within the first few months of coming out of graduating. You know, let's use a commercial model that supports this and gives them the experience and gives industry what they need rather than just sticking with this, well, you can only have them if you do X, Y, Z and report on it. It'll also help them. It'll also help the graduate work. What business do I want to work for? What role or roles do I want to do? And by the time you finish and maybe get your first job, not all those questions will be answered. So therefore, you want to be able to experience a few different things without being, you know, we've been talking about the future work and flexibility. You want the flexibility of experiencing several environments to work out what job, what state, what sort of business, at what stage of the business do I want to work? Do I want to work at startup? You know, lots of people say they like startup life, but, you know, maybe they don't. Yeah. <laughs> maybe they don't. The reality is very different. Suddenly it's not so sexy after all. No, correct. <laughs> yeah, correct. 
once you've got your black T-shirt with your, your company insert <laughs> logo on the front. I feel attacked. Time. I was wearing my black T-shirt with my Townvine logo on today, actually. So uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, we all fall victim to it every now and then. <laughs> yeah, I've got some spare T-shirts if any of you want some. <laughs> What size, Tim? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And talent fine merch on sale now. What's your XX self for you too? <laughs> Screw you, man. I know where you live. Yeah. But I think that's incredibly important in terms of yeah, the type of business, the type of role you want to do. Your example for Justin was a really good one in terms of, yeah, I didn't know I liked it until I saw it and then I do it. That's why I think sometimes even within businesses, I know this sounds really Right, but even sometimes in a business when they have a hackathon, it's actually a really, really good process. Deliberately, we just did one recently. It's a side kicker, and it's a great opportunity to fundamentally work in a different part of the business with a different part of people. You know, you can go and ask people, "Hey, can you do this for me?" And they'll either do it or not do it. To actually sit down and truly understand what other people do and how they do it, incredibly sort of humbling experience to realize what someone else does and I was too busy or too afraid to even ask them in terms of, hey, there's a, there's a good way of doing it via a hackathon. So maybe if there was like a hackathon version for grads where they can come and experience a few different things and realize, hang on a second, I thought I was headed bright line for finance, but geez, I don't mind that tech thing or I don't mind this part of finance or I think I might need to top up my legal skills and be that part of finance. You know, our wants and, and what we're interested in change. I remember when I was in high school, I hated maths and I hated science. And now the irony is now as an adult, so I'm fascinated by science and maths and, you know, that's what I'm now interested in. I just didn't learn it in high school. I didn't learn it in university. So I'm not a doctor and I'm not a chemist, you know, and I'm not doing things in the science space. But it's, you can change what you're interested in and then if you can study something and then switch into that field relatively easily, then why shouldn't we be able to do that? I'm a university and an MBA dropper, so I haven't been able to uh, make my way through either. And I know, you know, those of you with, with kids, would you still be encouraging your kids to go to university? Do you think that is the best way then that they get a good job? Because we see more and more and you see the screening tools and the way that people are analyzing and then looking at, um, you know, hiring talent and, uh, you know, that piece of paper is becoming more and more less irrelevant. You know, I would rather hire someone who's got a certificate in HubSpot management you know, as opposed to someone who's got a degree in, in marketing nowadays, you know, that just seems to be so much more more relevant. There are people out there with HubSpot certificates because, I mean, that's really, really important if anyone's ever used it and tried to set it up. Like, where are these people? That's exactly right. That would be a great certificate. Well, you should put a job on Talentfine and uh, you might get the best. <laughs> I guess all coming back to your points, I think, Tim, you use the word micro-credentials, that being the new sort of way for people to, to get skilled up in a quicker time period, but also in a, in a more applicable time period for businesses that they're either working on or businesses that they intend to work for, depending on the skills they need, as opposed to doing a three, four, five, six-year degree at a university that are based on sort of old world, being able to do these shorter courses, but more of them and more applicable, seems like it's going to be the way forward. From my perspective, I guess coming out of the U.S., what I've been seeing or noticing is there's a lot more companies now out there starting up their own sort of online universities, I guess, as a sense of being able to provide shorter courses in a more digestible format. Interesting times ahead, especially in that space. Imagine if company onboarding involved, all right, well, you're going to break up into your teams, which is based on what areas of the business you're working on. We're going to go through all the skill sets that are required in those areas. And then we're going to do an analysis of the team and see where those skill sets lie apply everyone to the jobs and wherever we've got a gap, 
We're going to sit you on these micro-credentialing courses in the first month that you're here. We're going to get you skilled up. And then as a team, you will have all the skills to complete the work that you need. That is the management and or the team management of the future. And maybe it's at both ends of the spectrum, right? Maybe it's for your grad and maybe it's retraining some of your boomers, right, in terms of apply their skills or keep their skills relevant. So, yeah, so I think that could probably be appropriate to both ends of the employment sort of spectrum if we want to help the young folk get into the right stream. But then also, how do we keep our economy productive by having more workers working and, and paying tax? will be actually sort of um, reskilling, upskilling or cross-skilling them. Maybe you're right, it's not them going back to university. It might be, hey, here's what you do to become a you know, part one of a tester. Here's what you do to become part two of a tester. Here's what you do to become part three of a tester. And all those different stages have different gates. One of my mates had successfully run their own business for the last 15 years. You know, they're in their early sort of 50s. And yeah, they've certainly struggled to find any type of employment. Lucky enough, they're not desperate to, so they've not got mortgage pressure sort of hanging on their head. But both of them found it really, really surprising about just how hard it is. And to your point, if there was a, uh, all these micro-credentials, that just allows them to be a couple more steps ahead or a couple of steps closer to finding something that's interesting rather than just something that they have to do. It's terribly demoralizing as well when you keep getting knocked back or not even getting the respect of being knocked back. You're just not being gotten back to. That's poor English, so apologies there. But yeah. No, no, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's probably a really accurate response like of what someone would say. I just was not gotten back to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Have anything? And in terms of, yeah, so having almost like the helping them retrain, but in terms of like the skill sets they would have at running their business would be incredible and it's incredibly powerful. But you're right, people and businesses were just not equipped to be able to look through that. Now, I'm just thinking about this. It's probably at both ends of the spectrum could definitely deal with that micro-credential, almost like those little badges, those little bit of affirmations on the way through. So it's not for the resume. It's literally, it's almost like that transparency. I've just done this, this, and this, and I did three weeks of work at that joint, and they liked me. Yeah, I can definitely see the whole education system being flipped on its head. Instead of doing a formal qualification, that leads to a job. It's almost like the job itself and and the requirements and how that evolves then dictates what skills you sort of go after. You almost remove the middleman, which is the big universities, out of the picture. And you can almost imagine people sort of just leaving school and starting work and then through that process learn what they like, like you were saying before, between you know contractorships or you know graduate programs or however it looks. That is a base for the individuals then to then tack on skills as they grow and develop. I guess we just need to obviously temper that by saying that there are certainly a lot of professions out there that really do need years of study. You know, I don't want a doctor who's just got out of school that's just going to learn on the job. You know, no, no one wants... Uh, well, I but guess if they're even, concentrated on just fixing your elbow, that's fine. That's a specialist. Yeah, 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 that's right. You know, there are certain requirements for it, but I, I would see, yeah, the, the education industry is going to be a lot like the media or the newspaper industry, you know, like they need to evolve. They need to find new ways of getting what the public wants in a commercial manner to be able to survive because their business is just like everybody else. But I think we're seeing that, in, you know, in the future and in the, in the near future, universities will hold far less weight than they did mm. back in the day. Mm. Well, look at the most in-demand professions at the moment. So, you know, software developers and and 70% of those who've been through university learned to start coding before they went to university as well. So, you know, you've got to ask how much of that skill set are they actually going to be learning in that environment as opposed to just, uh, just DIY. And that's been fruitful for them already. Well, that's it. Our tech team has the biggest amount of training costs than anyone because they're always going to new seminars and they're always doing week-long courses on new languages and how that works. I can't even tell you what the hell they're learning because 
it's gobbledygook to me. But they're constantly learning because it's constantly changing. And actually, my father-in-law is a doctor, and doctors are constantly learning because medicine was constantly changing. It was the prerogative of the doctor to make sure that they're constantly going to conferences, that they're reading papers, that they're educating themselves on the latest things. They just never stopped. They were always educating themselves because that was just medicine. But that's now becoming the norm for most industries. Yeah, that's true. Whether you do that yourself within an organization or you you take the opportunity to work at multiple organizations to get that experience or to get that sort of um, knowledge base. And then just rounding out that credentialing sort of piece It's really interesting that, yeah, like we've all sort of cottoned onto that in terms of, so our platform almost like has that review-based sort of system and we see it almost like time and time again in terms of people will generally make the decision based on, I'm tossing up between two of these candidates. Yeah, this person's worked at a few more organizations and they've got a five-star rating. Um, Yeah, I'm going to lessen the risk. I'm going to go with that person. So we we see it all the time in terms of that, the faith that people put in the micro-credentialing or someone else almost like vouching for those people's skills, almost like the peer review is going to be so much more powerful than less. Let me check out their resume and I'll do a reference check to someone who's probably your mate. I want to see what three or four people have said over smaller instances rather than how I worked there for five years and I'll have a 10-minute reference check with someone. I think you touched on a good point there, which is your platform, by proxy of the way that it's set up and the way that the feedback loops are in there and the quality controls in there is that you are capturing a lot of data on what skills are more highly sought after, what aren't. I think it's actually going to be a responsibility of platforms like all of ours to be able to feed that data into a government body to be able to give accurate forecasts for the future work and to predict the trends that are happening. And that's what's missing. I mean, have you you guys ever seen like a lot of the jobs reports that come out and things like that? They're either just focused on job ads, which is just one element of a very complex equation, or they're looking at, you know, turnover rates, um, you know, all of these different things. People just grab onto one set of data and go, oh, well, that shows us a trend and we need to make policy around that trend. But it's, we know that it's not simple. It's complex. There are multiple levels. There are multiple ways of people working. There are multiple skill sets. There are multiple industries. And some industries are going up and some industries are going down and vice versa sometimes. So it's going to be the platforms like ours that will be a responsibility for us to compress that data. Oh, sorry, not compress that data. To analyze that data and then provide these reports into some sort of central body so that they can look at it from all angles and make the best decisions rather than just hazard decisions based off singular points of data. Have that report done by next week, and in 2030, there'll be a think tank. <laughs> oh, look at that. I almost set that up for you. Though. <laughs> <laughs> I had a good swing at that one. <laughs> but yeah, Tim, I liked your point. It's about getting that sort of real data from the ground level, from what's actually happening in the economy at multiple sort of industries as well, and feeding that data into you know the organizations or governments that can analyze it and then be able to actually make informed decisions. And then be able to make more adaptive decisions as that data set changes and evolves over time, not having to run polls or surveys that might take weeks or months to finally analyze. You can almost build a system that would analyze the data that's coming in that then informs policy decision going forward. So you have that more sort of rapid iterative approach that we see in, um, in smaller companies, but allowing governments to harness the agility. Okay, yeah. Imagine if school kids could log into a portal and see what skill sets in industry were going up in demand and what were going down. 
And so that they could then go, well, I'm not obviously going to throw my career into one that's going down. I'm going to focus on one of the new exciting ones that are developing. You know, what's this robotics thing? You know, what's this? They explore the skills that are in demand. The only way that's going to happen is if we have real-time data being fed into a system that is then being updated for school kids to then look at. And then universities, through supply and demand, will create courses that meet what students are looking for. I want to be whatever type of person, professional, therefore, where do I get that course? And if they need to go to a private education provider to do that because the universities haven't caught up, supply and demand will force that change. Yeah, so it's about making an informed decision. You could have a history of what that data set looks like. So you could see the rise and fall of professions across the years and what it sort of looks like. You know, maybe things go in waves and phases. Something that was in sort of in fashion now won't be in five years, but then maybe in 10. You can imagine, you know, if you collected this data over a long period of time, anyone interested in that data set could track the, you know, growths and trends over that period. And it's the granularity of that data that's important, right? So in terms of, look, manufacturing's had a very steady, yeah, very steady. There's definitely pockets that aren't doing that. If you just think about, you know, probably almost like how our brains are wired in terms of, hey, we normally just cotton onto one thing or the media cottons onto one thing and then that becomes the news as opposed to, hey, what's the story behind the story? What's the detail within that story? I just think you're right. I agree with you sometimes in terms of the data sort of certainly there, but sometimes we get... Not brainwashed, but it almost like, hey, we just look for the, uh, we just look for how, how can our brains simply solve what these things tell me? Great. I've solved it. I'll move on to the next one as opposed to trying to work it out. Or you could do what my kids do and just talk into their phone and ask Siri. Hey, Siri. <laughs> hey, Siri, what's going to be the job of 2030? And Siri, pro- yeah, Siri probably knows that as much as I say, how about we just try and work it out ourselves? What's uh, the weather tomorrow? good example of this is project management. You remember like project management wasn't really a thing or a trend until what, the 90s and then through the noughties. Now, project managers are everywhere. You know, they're easy to find. I mean, yeah, okay, I'm not putting down project managers that are on top of their game and are running massive programs. That's all I'm talking about. But project management now is almost just a way of managing work because everything is in projects now. Everything has a start and an end date. You've got a budget, you've got quality uh, control that you've got to get it to, and you've got uh, a schedule. That's a logical way of organizing work. So it's almost now just a general skill that people just have to have. You have to be able to manage a project. But back in the 90s, that was like something you had to do a degree in, you had to be certified. It was a full-on profession. Maybe it can be more general, and most people can do it. And I want to see the government as well being able to, to support it and looking those positions that we don't know are there yet. The solar energy technicians, right? The genetic counselors, those type of positions that, you know, we need to be kind of open to and, and looking to, you know, even as far as there's people out there that probably want to be, you know, marijuana farms and, and see the benefits of kind of CBD and want to be able to take that to the mainstream. There needs to be that kind of willingness to be open and to embrace the jobs of the future as well and not to kind of shame any of that as well. I mean, I don't know how many people, how many kids in, in Australia growing up wanting to be coal miners anymore, right? Let's support people in, in those choices and give them the data to be able to see that that's where there's going to be opportunities. In terms of a skill set, are there any skills that you think will sort of last the, the test of time? People can start investing in now that are not guaranteed, but are sort of more likely to, to be more, more permanent in nature. I think soft skills. I think that's the, the most important thing. So, so that's where obviously, uh, you know, technology is not going to replicate 
the strategy, the leadership, the empathy, uh, those aspects that are so important from, you know, coworkers and then from leaders and managers within organizations, you know, with the future of work, the more automation that, you know, comes into our daily lives and the jobs that we do, it's going to free up our time and be able to invest more of that time and that resources of our own into being better colleagues and being more kind of strategic and creative in, in what we can bring to our jobs and, and our organizations. And a lot of those kind of competencies, you know, the jury's still out whether they can be taught, but, um, you know, they can certainly be developed. I agree. Yeah, I agree with you. So in terms of, yeah, it's almost like, hey, the, anything that's a repetitive task or repetitive thing, yeah, that's definitely on the way out, you know, data collection or data processing or something that's done physically but in a really predictable manner, that will definitely be sort of mechanised. But in terms of, you're right, people that manage, whether it be, you know, using your example, that project management before or managing sort of staff, that's certainly, in my experience, certainly an unpredictable rather than predictable sort of tasks. You know, the sales, the relationships, the hospitality sort of skills, all that really, really sort of high level sort of, that really, really high level sort of expertise is not going away anytime soon. But certainly anything that can be, yeah, and, and anything just requires a whole bunch of previous knowledge and just asking, kind of like asking Siri about stuff because she's got a whole bunch of knowledge. Yeah, those yeah, those tasks, those jobs, those things. Yeah, I was even going to say like business development and sales. I actually think those ones come into the same thing that Justin was talking about in terms of soft skills. You know, people still want relationships. They still want to do business with people they trust. That is embedded into us. It's simply because as human beings, we are slightly paranoid. If we don't know you, then there's a chance that you could screw us over. Yeah, yeah. You know, so so I want a relationship. I want to know. I want to know about you. I want to know if you're a good person. I want to know if you, you know, what your family's like. Yeah, what your business is like. You know, what's your culture? Particularly if it's a big deal, like if it's a big program, and I'm partnering with you. You know, that relationship side is a big one. So business development manager, even sales people. You know, I know a lot of sales now can be done digitally online. Um, I would certainly think that retail sales is not one of those that I'm including in that. But any type of complex sales, people want to talk to people. They want to be able to ask questions and get answers from people and determine whether those answers are genuine or whether it's just a script that determines whether that's successful or not. So I think that's a really good example of the types of jobs that will survive through. And what should businesses be doing to support their workforce to develop those sort of compelling relationships and be able to to build that trust? I think to step out of their current roles and and be able to it could be, you know, an element of, of job share, but, um, you know, our software development manager, uh, Sinash, you know, she wanted to, to start doing more presenting. And, and today she, you know, our application for Ignite Ideas grant, which, um, those of you in Queensland, just a reminder, deadline is Monday. Um, <laughs> like she, she put together the whole sales presentation and, you know, recorded herself to doing that. And, um, you know, she's done a fantastic job. So I think just, uh, you know, letting people, Try things without the fear of knowing that they that you're going to come hard on them if they if they fail that. But yeah, just uh, embracing you know the learning that's out there. You know the video learning software that you can learn so much just on Blender or YouTube if you're you know just on a on a budget. Um, but yeah, also going to to training days and you know we're around sales skills or building trust and, and empathy. And I think that's really important. Yeah, yeah. and I think the other thing is uh, you know asking people what they want, what's their ambition. You know, when I hired my CTO, he'd never been a CTO before. He was a lead developer, um, very ambitious. And I said, look, I'm hiring a CTO. And he said, look, I'm not a CTO, but I'm very keen to do it. What do you need me to do? And I said, okay, well, we went through a number of all of the different things that the CTO would have to do. But I said, well, one of them is, you know, when you're going to be the CTO of the next unicorn, 
boom, <laughs> mic drop. Um, you know, you're going to have to be able to speak publicly. You're going to have to be able to go to conferences and talk about how did you build Benchon? How did you build the platform? You know, and be able to talk about the new trends and how you're implementing them. And he said, oh, I'm not really good at public speaking. And I went, okay, well, you know, you, you can work on it. It's up to you. But if you don't think you're suitable, and he went, no, no, I'm suitable. And then he started going to Toastmasters once a week and practicing his public speaking. And now he's actually quite good. I mean, still, if you're not technical, you probably won't understand most of what he's talking about. Those six people, geez, they love when he talks. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but he can now stand up in front of, you know, 50 people and talk confidently about a topic, whereas when I first met him, he couldn't. That was driven by him. We just gave him the freedom to be able to do that. I think that's all it is. You ask and provide the, the room for them to do it. And I think for me, just rounding this out, if I think about how can businesses harness the collective, it's almost like it's the leaders or managers within that business because they're the ones who are dealing with the, you know, I guess, dealing with sort of frontline staff. So in terms of if you just mentioned it before, in terms of almost like, hey, make it okay to fail, it's almost like helping your leaders get the trust from their workers, get them being really open with them, and then getting your leaders to feed that stuff up to the, almost like up to the hierarchy in terms of, hey, we're hearing this from customers. I think we need to do this. I think we need to pivot this way. I think we need to do, I think we need to do X, Y, or Z. Yeah. So I think it's almost like in investing and listening to your leaders because they're the ones who are harnessing lots of what the clients are saying, lots of what your workers are saying. Um, they're, really close to what's happening within your culture. But often, yeah, often almost like the skills development is mostly done at when people are new or when people are technical skills as opposed to, hey, what's happening with your frontline leaders and how are you harnessing them? So for me, yeah, I see that being a really good way that businesses can stay connected to what their workers and customers are saying and then to be able to, you know, pivot if they need to be or, you know, get people to sort of um, yeah, jump on and sort of and get behind different things. So, what, yeah, so I see, I see it in there that, that leaders being really critical. Yeah, it's important to yeah. sort of develop staff into, you know, who, who they want to be and who, who they want to develop into and then providing that platform and that support for them. 100%. Yeah, 100%. if someone needs, yeah, if someone needs two days, someone needs three days, someone needs, I need to go off for a couple of months and do this, you're right. It's almost like the language of the company kind of comes out of the manager's mouth. Yeah, regardless of if it's what they think or not. Yeah, exactly, precisely. And I think culture there plays a big point, a big mm. factor as well. If you've got the right culture that supports that sort of open collaborative learning and allows people to develop, then can only mean good things for, you know, the relationships that they're building, the trust that they're sort of fostering, not only within, you know, their organization, but with, with the people they're serving as well. Tim, Damien and Justin, some closing thoughts on the future of work. What does it look like? And where do you see it going? So my views have always been that the future work will be a balanced approach of all different types of new and exciting ways of working that we probably haven't even discovered yet. But that's an exciting future where you will have more of a tailored work experience than you've ever had before. I think to deal with the negative side of it, which is job displacement, robotics and automation taking jobs, I think governments need to step up and lead and start taking action now. Businesses need to be giving their people a learning culture and start looking at them from a skills basis rather than a job title basis. People need to be taking more responsibility in terms of guiding their own fate and making sure they're educated that way. feel pretty pumped and pretty positive about it. I think it's going to be a lot more niche. People are going to find their specialisms and, and uh, specialisations, shall I say, and, and being able to do that from where they want 
when they want, how they want, being able to create their lives that work alongside their jobs. That's going to be, and employers, I think, who, who embrace that, who have the trust of their employees to be able to know that they're doing the work from home or whilst they're on holiday on, on Bali or wherever they are, they're the ones who are going to lead. And that's going to really foster better employers, more engaged employers and, and help those businesses to compete a lot more. So it's really going to be led, as Tim mentioned, both by the individuals themselves having the willingness to, to learn and, and put up their hand to want to go and do the training and, and also from the organizations who, who trust others or are willing to bring technologies in that, that look after those kind of the automated aspects of the job that allows those people then to be able to benefit a lot more in the areas where, where their strengths lie. And I think, yeah, just running out, I think, yeah, a couple of words that sort of spring to mind is around the, I guess, the future of work to me equals flexibility and more almost like that remote sort of collaboration. So I'm actually looking forward to almost like being part of, you know, working with the team. I might have someone in Melbourne, someone in, you know, the US and someone in sort of Fiji. We're all collaborating together and technology brings, yeah, technology brings us together, you know, and we may not all be full-time employees of that organization, but we're all there to solve that. Yeah, we're all there to sort of solve that problem. So technology will enable that. I think the workforce itself in terms of the scarcity of labor will probably dictate that to a certain degree. And then just thinking about the, the many, many levels of, uh, yeah, if the, if, if the boomer utilization is, uh, you know, um, is what, what we need to do, just thinking about all those levels of experience within those, yeah, within those um, that's in, going to be in the workforce. I think what is exciting is the business or the businesses that can tackle and do a really good job of utilizing all of that experience coupled with the energy down at, yeah, coupled with the energy that, um, yeah, I, I think those are the businesses that win and they're going to win big. And I think we've already seen, you know, businesses that can't adapt and change. Um, yeah, they quickly be, they, they quickly lose their relevance. So in terms of the governments have certainly got a role to play, but also sort of businesses to keep themselves relevant and interested for their yeah for, for whether it be their public or private sort of shareholders I, yeah i think that's going to be really exciting and you know we'll see we're already seeing trends of it now but i think those trends will be magnified really quickly and really soon definitely in an exciting era as we sort of head into you know 2020 and beyond of where it's all going to go but look thank you all once again for your time tonight uh, and sharing your perspectives on the future of work thanks for having us mate really appreciate you, having this together Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Stories Behind the Grind. Please share the podcast. And if you're not already subscribed, be sure to do that right now. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you could do me a quick favor and rate and review the podcast. This lets the platform know that I'm doing something right and people like the content. It'd be a huge help and I'd be really, really grateful if you could. Until next time.